I think in some ways it's easy, in some ways it's hard. It's easy in the sense of, you know, how does organized gameplay look like as a business? And you look at the NBA or the NFL and a traditional sports league, and you could see how fandom uh, needs to be cultivated and how competition can create that. Um, and obviously we're not at the level yet of the NFL or the NBA, but the trajectory of where we're going, the underlying participation numbers that you see both in our businesses and their businesses um, indicate that we will get there. So it's not when, or it's not if, but when. I think the part that becomes harder to crystal ball is how video games and esports being at the center of digital and technology will reshape fandom. And I think that's a challenge that all sports and entertainment are starting to go through and figure out. Um, but um, what does it mean to be, as a fan, how do I consume this fandom? That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Craig Levine has always been ahead of almost everyone in esports. He can tell you stories that go back to the early 2000s, when most people had no idea what gaming even was. Today, he's the co-CEO of ESL Faceit Group the leading competitive games and esports company. Craig helped lead the merger of ESL Gaming and Faceit in 2022 and previously served as the co-CEO of ESL Gaming, where he led global business strategy and operations. A longtime gamer, Craig originally founded one of the first North American professional esports teams, Team 3D, back in 2002. And he co-founded the ESEA League. My first question to Craig was kind of personal with myself because when I was growing up, it was all about Atari and playing games on my VIC-20. And my dad would say, what are you wasting your time for? So I had to ask him, what was it like for you growing up? Were you always into video games? And did you also have to deal with your parents asking you why you were wasting your time? Craig, thanks so much for uh, joining me on today's episode of How Success Happens. It is a uh, pleasure getting a chance to talk to you. And I, I want to start just going back because when I was growing up, I remember uh, obviously being a little older than you. you know, it was about Atari and I played games on the VIC-20 and, and my dad looked at me and would say, what are you wasting your time for? So I want to know. You're, you've been in this world in esports for so long, but you also were a gamer. So growing up, what was it like for you? Were you always into video games? And did you also have to deal with your parents telling you that? <laughs> I think every child probably still even hears that line. But for me, I grew up on Long Island, sort of a suburb uh, outside New York, middle child, two brothers. I was on the sort of the block where you'd go knock on neighbors' doors and run out and ride bicycles and play sports and kind of wait till uh, dinner time to come home. But together, we also started playing video games. So for us, it was Nintendo. Um, and I remember from the earliest of ages, you know, playing Mario together or 
you know, huddling around the TV, seeing how far we could get with Zelda, right? You couldn't save games back then. So dinner had to, trying to convince mom to wait for dinner. <laughs> um, but it really kind of started from those, those early sorts of days of just childhood and playing with, with friends. Yeah. Was there always a passion? Did you always have a passion? Uh, or maybe I might call it because I think of myself an addiction where you just had to play. I call it a passion. Uh, <laughs> Better but, term. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, but uh, definitely, I mean, I, I was always into sort of technology, right? When I was growing up, sort of computers were just coming about. And I remember I would get parts and build computers and upgrade computers. And you just built the hit a turbo button on it, go from 23 megahertz to 33 megahertz. So it was always sort of that technology um, was always sort of something that always captivated me. And with video games, obviously, conventionally coming on to PCs uh, with PC gaming and then really video games driving in many ways technology. So, you know, I went from playing Nintendo with friends to playing online video games with friends from the earliest of dial up days and all of those early services. And then we'd start hosting competitions with friends uh, at high school. Right. We'd be we were junior high school. Even we'd come home from class and we'd go play Command and Conquer and we'd make a bracket. And, you know, we talk about it the next day of who did what. So you can kind of see from the earliest of ages, for me, at least, kind of how my love of video games, passion for technology and sort of this competitive side came together. And for me, you know, I played sports. I was in different clubs, but video games for me replaced television. So I was never the kid that sat in front of the television. So always drawn to the more interactive nature and the communities and relationships that we we're forming online while this all was happening. So I feel like I still was able to avoid the word addiction. And again, kind of replacing that two or three hours a day that people were spending in front of the TV. I was, you know, connected with people all over the world playing different video games. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great point, because I, I look when I was growing up, it was you only played with the person if they were sitting right next to you and had a joystick. Right. And when you really started playing and well, well, moved into it more and more, it was much more about community. And and that's obviously become a, a huge part, I am sure, of gaming today, which which we'll get into. But I do want to talk about early influences because you ended up going out and I think and you tell me becoming an actual professional gamer and then starting your own business. Were there any influences, whether parents or people in that neighborhood that really kind of gave you some insight or tips or just drove you to become what you are today? Yeah, a huge influence. My dad, uh, he was a pharmacist, owned an independent pharmacy. And, you know, from 13 years old, every other Saturday, we'd go into work with him and work today. Fortunately, when it was slow, it meant, you know, getting paid to do homework. But, you know, in terms of really getting exposure, you know, directly in the business, not just sitting there working the register, but understanding how inventory worked and how to manage different suppliers and vendors and just seeing how he, you know, built the relationship with his customers and built that trust over those years. So definitely that entrepreneurial exposure started for me from a very young age through my dad and got a sense also of the work ethic, right? The hustle of it, right? He didn't have a traditional corporate nine to five Monday to Friday job. He working on Saturdays and, you know, sometimes not every day would be home for dinner. So you got that work ethic, I think, installed at a very young age as well. And so definitely into the transition or confidence, I would even say, or support to sort of start something or be a little bit more risk on, I think was exposed to it from a very young age. 
Talk to me about your gaming and, and getting involved, because when you did, that was really early on, I assume, in esports when you were playing, actually, I guess, tournaments. And, and tell me how that then led to you starting your own business. Yeah. So back in the day, it wasn't even called esports. There wasn't even a word for it. But kind of the tail end of my high school years got really, you know, eventually the game Counter-Strike had come out. And I had a good friend from high school, longtime childhood friend, and we would play together and we're on a team together. So we were sort of competing sort of, if you will, in the online leagues. And again, you'd show up the next day, go to class, have lunch, you chit chat about strategies and whatnot, but started competing through online leagues together in sort of the late 90s. Eventually, I came to NYU, so did uh, undergrad at the Stern Business School there and quickly realized that I wasn't going to do well. In school, wasn't going to keep playing lots of video games. And oh, by the way, also enjoy life in New York City. So I kind of turned from playing competitively to starting the first professional team. So I kind of went from a player into this sort of like team manager or owner, if you will, called Team 3D. This was back in 2001. So my job was actually to go out and I started the team. So I had to recruit the best players. So it was people that I had been playing against and had known of online and and lost to them in most cases. I'm going to go get people who you've been beating. And eventually my job was to go out and get sponsorship. And for us at the time, sponsorship was, can you get someone to pay for our travel to go down to this annual twice a year event in Dallas, Texas called CPL or the Cyber Athlete Professional League. And these would be hosted in the Hyatt downtown Regency. It would be the hotel ballroom. It would be hundreds, thousands of people who'd flown in from all over the world, bringing their own computer on the airplane, plugging into what's called the BYOC or bring your own computer and competing over the weekend. So to get companies like CompUSA and NVIDIA to pay for our travel was sort of the pinnacle of it. And eventually that grew as we grew success and salaries came into the mix and it became international travel and not twice a year, but once a month and sort of that journey, that transition from player to team owner, if you will, had begun. Comp USA, man. I totally forgot about Comp USA. That's a great call. Oh my God. So you look <laughs> back, you know, and it's incredible what esports, what gaming has become. Really, I'm not even going back to when you were first starting. That that those are incredible stories. And I mean, you must have so many. But looking at it even 10 years ago or today, what a huge business it's become. But you did decide to start this company. And what was your plan aside from you you had your team, there's sponsorships, there's tournaments. Talk to me about that business and and what really catapulted you to to begin it. Yeah, I think what catapulted was just my role and position, I would say, in that community, a little bit as you were describing earlier, the sense of belonging to these friends that I played with and played against and recognizing and understanding that I, again, wasn't going to be relevant as to them as I wasn't paying. And that's kind of, I think, what was the impetus to do it. And we'd always had talked about right this dream of going and winning this event. I said, why not? Why not us kind of thing? Um, so there wasn't much of a plan to be honest. And as a freshman in college, so it was, you know, a little bit like just looking to get your next you know, dollar to get your next beer kind of thing. Uh, I said, Hey, if I could have fun with this, I'm going to undergrad business school. Clearly there's going to be things to apply both sides out of this. This feels like kind of a no risk kind of thing to do. 
And so in the beginning of that, it was low risk for us. And for me, the team was less of the end state and more of a jumping off point, right? What the team did was it sort of got us exposure. We eventually traveled around the world. We'd go to Korea, we'd go to France, we'd go to Sweden, South America. And I remember one trip coming home from Korea, it's called the World Cyber Games. And we're sitting at the airport and I was uh, sitting across from one of the journalists from Sweden. Again, also a teenager, right? Sort of our age. <laughs> and he was telling us about this training website that had existed in Sweden where all the top players played. And it was kind of like a private country club, if you will, for the best players with the best game servers, the lowest latency. I was like, oh, why doesn't that exist? Why don't you do in the US? Like we only do it in Sweden. Like, okay. I had a long <laughs> flight home from the Seoul airport. Uh, back to New York. And when I got back, I went online and found a business partner from our, our community who could program. And I said, hey, let's take a look at this thing and let's kind of recreate and improve it. So we kind of launched this, like if you will, country club for esports or Counter-Strike at the time. So people would pay us $7 a month. You'd come on, you get access to this private game server community, higher quality, custom anti-cheat tools, statistics in your profiles. And we kind of grew that business. So that was sophomore year. So it started the team freshman year. And that was really, I would say, really the business, if you will, that I had, had kind of taken. I mean, the players were making salaries. That was obviously a marketing tool as well. It gave credibility to this community at the time of this is where the best players played. So it kind of found ways to stitch things together. And eventually this idea of building an online community sort of said, okay, we want to do a live event. We want to see ourselves who's the best. So we rented a hotel ballroom in Dallas, Texas, and we brought, you know, the top ranked players from our community to compete. And then eventually we kind of said there's sponsorships and brands that want to connect with this audience. So that kind of then created this, uh, another business we called eSports services, which was like a marketing agency around video games and eSports. So I, I don't know what it's called when you turn a paperclip into a notebook, into a, a supercomputer into Ferrari, but that's a little bit of what the uh, the last 23 years of my life have been. <laughs> what, what, what was that like initially? You know, you're in school, obviously you're in school to study, right? Or you're, you're especially, you know, you're at Stern Business School, which I mean, it's funny because I look at it as the real business knowledge you were getting was what you were doing on the side. But was it difficult at that point to be in college and also to be running and, and, and starting this business. Yeah, definitely. I think that's where I think that work exposure to that work ethic from a young age really kicked in. I wasn't sleeping late on weekends. I wasn't even sitting around playing Halo in the dorm room. I was working on the business. And I think also for me in each of these businesses, it wasn't a business where it was myself going out and grinding even from the earliest point with the team, I was sort of the leader, if you will, right? The manager, the owner of these other five competitors and managing lineup changes. So uh, I think that definitely shaped my college experience differently. Had, had friends went out all the time, but again, just in terms of really being efficient with it and kind of that different position that you had versus just being a college kid with a messy dorm and maybe kind of floating around, there was always someone pushing me because I always had a responsibility and an obligation to these people that I was working with. So definitely shaped it. At the time, and, and it's you think back and, and esports, like you said, it was there wasn't esports even when you started or it was gaming, right? And, and it wasn't it, it was becoming an industry. But when you think back and look back, were there a lot of challenges because of that for you? And did you have any 
thoughts of maybe I should go get a job in banking or something boring like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in many ways, everything was a challenge, right? There, we were starting a company, but we were pioneering an industry. And so figuring out even what are you doing? <laughs> I was sort of the starting point. But for us, we have this saying, we said, revenue follows relevancy. So you kind of knew through all of these years, these naive years of our life that the tournament had 1,000 people. Then there were 10,000 people watching online over the internet. So you sort of saw these sprinkles kind of through the way that you just sort of kept following. So the challenges, I think, was what's the business, building relevancy, and then eventually figuring out how do you monetize on top of that. It's gotten much more complicated these days with different stakeholders as the industry became something. But early on, it was sort of kind of pushing through a little bit, not because we had some grand idea that we were going to fill sports arenas, but just because we like doing it. And then obviously you hit a certain point through it all that then things sort of accelerate, if you will, or reflection points sort of through that. But in the beginning, it was just a bunch of kids who liked playing video games, wanting to see who was better. That's great. When you, you talked about inflection points, do you recall, I don't know if you can even recall some of these points in, in, in around the time period or year where you said to yourself or your team or group company, like, you know what, we really are into something that is growing or is going to grow tremendously. Anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think there were all different inflection points for the industry, right? It started with a little bit, it goes back a little bit how video games, I think, have helped drive technology and obviously vice versa. But started with just online video games, right? That that became something in sort of the late 90s through just the internet. Social media came out, you know, with face with Facebook. But even before then, there was something called IRC or Internet Relay Chat. There were these chat rooms that we go on. But Facebook taking these chat these niche chat rooms to become mainstream was definitely an inflection point. The democratization of content, right, with uh, live streaming platforms like Twitch. Now we could put our content out there for tens of millions of people to discover. And the business model of games eventually changing. It had been you know, first popularized in Asia with games as a service or microtransactions. But up until League of Legends in the US in uh, 2007-ish, um, games were sort of the business was box sales. But the shift to games as a service was critical for esports because esports is a, re a retention and engagement mechanism. So it was no longer... I'm going to sell you the next game in a year. It's every day I'm trying to sell you another dollar, another skin. Um, and that's where esports start to become really complementary and create more durability. But in terms of the business, I think another key inflection point was the first time we filled a sports arena. It was in this little coal mining town called Katowice, Poland, back in about 2013. And we, our Polish uh, head said, uh, our office head had this opportunity to go host a competition in an arena. And we'd seen it in Asia and Korea and China, but no one had ever done it in the Western world. And I think that was such an important breakthrough moment for the business and the industry because it contextualized 10 million people or 40 million people watching live this event into this arena full of people screaming. So the opportunity to, for even ourselves to see what that felt like and then to accelerate, you know, as we started to host that event every year and more events than decision makers with budgets coming in, then that was the catalyst to really unlock it. So I think sort of through the journey, that was, you know, some of the key points, but that first arena event in 2013, I think sort of crystallized um, the fandom that we were creating and then how we would be disrupting, quite frankly, you know, a generation, uh, what entertainment is. 
Mm, totally. I'm curious when you think back and think to earlier days and, and when you were first starting playing, like, could you ever imagine, or may, maybe you did, that people would want to actually watch, not only watch and go to arenas live, but watch online, watch people play online. Like, could you even envision that? It's, it sounds it sounds crazy as you say it, but even think how we started the, the conversation talking about how you started with joysticks, watching people, right? So this experience was happening from the earliest moments of video games. It was just a very localized experience around a television, around an arcade cabinet. So when you kind of envision it back and you think about that, it's not so far-fetched right? That, that this has all sort of emerged. And Gen Z now is the first generation that would rather watch people play video games than play video games themselves. Wow. So as big as esports is, we still keep kind of reflecting of how early this still is, how much more room to grow, the generational dynamic that gets created when parents will play video games with their children in a way that mine didn't because they didn't grow up with video games. <laughs> so, right, fandom of sports is typically passed down, right? I'm a Mets fan because my dad took me to Shea Stadium. And now there's going to be Team Liquid fans and G2 fans and Navi fans because they're parents. That's how they grew up. So when you extrapolate out and you fast forward where this is going based off the undeniable audience that even exists today, it's still so early. You know, it's a great point. When you were saying that, I was thinking to myself because I spent countless hours at arcades growing up, especially Nathan's and Yonkers. And when I think about it, I would sit there and I would watch someone play Asteroids or Defender or Pac-Man. And like, you would get into it as much as like watching someone really good or so. It is funny to think, like I asked that question, but in reality, I understand it now. So tell me about, I mean, you have become incredibly accomplished, have created this incredible company. You are now a co-CEO. Tell me about ESL and, and, and the beginnings of that business, which today is, is global. Yeah. So to tell where we are today, we actually have to rewind even my own story. So when we were Team 3D, the Counter-Strike team competing, we would very often compete, find ourselves in the finals of these international competitions against a Swedish team called Schrupp Commando, or Swedish lineup, sort of a German organization, if you will. And it had been one of the co-founders there, gentleman Ralph, also started ESL. So Ralph and I had known each other, similar, very similar kinds of journeys, very similar kind of paths. He'd started ESL while I'd had these other communities and agencies, if you will, sort of here in the U.S., uh, he was doing it over in Europe. So eventually in 2014, we'd known each other forever because our teams were competing against one another. And we finally took the decision to combine the companies and really accelerated their business by expanding into the US. So rather than being European, it really started the first seeds to truly become global. So that was back in 2014. And through that, I had various roles of building the US and different leadership positions. And then when COVID hit in 2020, it was like every company went to fight or flight mode, right? They sort of cut out the BS and everyone look around and through that and sort of worked with the team to reimagine our strategy, refocus on where the core was. And with that took over, became co-CEO together with Ralph. So 
that's sort of how my journey into ESL started was first as competitors, admirers, and then eventually, you know, joining in through that time in COVID. And part of that rethink of strategy then was looking at the ESL business, which was about hosting these big competitions and creating these competitive ecosystems all over the world for all different titles on all different platforms. And we recognized that one of the weaknesses in the business was that we didn't have a strong enough relationship with our consumer and that there was an opportunity to build a deeper relationship with game publishers through technology. So we'd known the team over at Faceit pretty well. Uh, they'd actually had copied a very, the same concept that I'd copied uh, 14 years earlier. They similarly had copied it starting in 2012 had raised money and scaled it in a different way. But we said it makes a lot of sense to combine the business of ESL and this business of FaceIt. So with that, we created ESL FaceIt Group in January of 2022. And since then have expanded, I would say, the mission of what we're on. So together now we say we build worlds beyond gameplay where players and fans become community. It's no longer just about esports, right? Esports is huge. I would argue esports is the strongest manifestation of community. But different games are celebrated by communities in different ways. And now we're able to sort of have a bigger swath or canvas, if you will, where, yes, we're hosting these big competitions. And we're hosting these festivals called DreamHack all around the world that celebrate gaming, lifestyle, and culture. And we have Face It as what we call our digital platform, which is engaging these viewers, converting them into players and having them competing, sharing, socializing, and connecting, if you will, all, the, you know, all throughout. So it's been quite a journey from call it a college dorm room to now CEO of a co-CEO of ESL Facebook Group. Talk to me about that merger, so to speak, with FaceIt. And, and it sounds ideal, right? The digital side, the event side, great opportunity. How has that been for you personally, just in terms of going from being running ESL and now adding and growing? And has that been difficult for you? Are you enjoying it easy? Uh, it's been a ton of fun. With the merger of ESL and Basic Group, we'd sold the combined business to a group called Savvy Games Group, uh, which is part of a, a larger video game strategy. But what's been really fun about this is being able to have long-term growth capital with a long-term investment horizon onto an industry and a business that's still pretty young. And I think what's been really fun as being able to be co-CEO through that is to use different parts of the brain, right? So each, each step, each chapter, you're sort of building and then to kind of scale now is kind of a different piece. So the organizational side of it, I think, has become an, an area now that's a new muscle, if you will, that we've gotten to flex a lot over the last 18 months now. So more focus on building culture and setting the long-term vision and org structures. And I, I think that's been a new sort of um, exercise for us. Uh, and then also the opportunity, again, to reflect on the industry and to say, where is this going? What does it need to get there? And being able to work with our super talented teams and create that horizon for us. So the ambition that we have is astronomical, uh, as big as it is today, everything we're talking about, how much bigger it is. And there's so much more still that we're yet to do. And uh, we've never been better positioned to do it. So with the merger of it with the sale to Savvy Games, we say we're able to go from survival mode, uh, like any startup, into, into growth mode. And that's a, that's a mindset shift. Oh, yeah. And it's such a great thing to be able to do when you know you're on the right path. And you know, as many entrepreneurs listening, other entrepreneurs, and like you just talked about yourself, 
sometimes you can't focus big picture long term because you're you're thinking next payroll or you're thinking what are our numbers going to be next quarter and to have that opportunity especially in a a growing a business that continues to grow must be a great opportunity for you and challenge and also does it allow to help you shape the future of gaming Absolutely. So it's a ton of fun, right? To kind of be back in this, we're builders, we're entrepreneurs, right? So again, now we've got different resources in terms of the scale or heritage that we've built, uh, as well as the financial capital that we have access to, to be able to do that. But definitely we're able to look ahead and, and think about it. And for us, we think a lot about what are the challenge of the industry and how can we solve that? And so some of the key trends are that we're seeing are with publishers and teams a little bit how can we step in and be a leader for those? So for publishers, they know that video games drives engagement and retention. It's kind of become this fundamental growth strategy, if you will, around multiplayer gameplay. But esports is the how for them, right? The what and the why is, again, engagement and retention. So can we be a trusted partner for some of the biggest game IP, quite frankly, some of the biggest IP and media to help build an esports ecosystem together with those publishers? So trying to leverage the global scale that we have, we host you know, over 50 live events each year wow. and produce over 22,000 hours of live content. So we're going to 14 arenas and 10 festivals. If you're a game publisher, that's a great footprint to plug your game into. And I think as the games business continues to get more competitive with free to play, with you know, the democratization of game tools and game engines and more and more we're seeing publishers wanting and needing to focus on making great games, right? It's a different business to make a great game than it is to run an esports company. So I think that's a good example with publishers, how we're working together and, and seeing how we can tackle some of the challenges that they face in their business as well. Yeah. Before I let you go, I just want a couple last questions. And, and I wanted to ask, for someone who grew up with this passion and has played now as you get older, right? Have you, do you still have that passion that you see? Are you still wanting to play that much? Is it still there? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when you work in the sausage factory, it never tastes as good. Uh, so I think my gaming <laughs> habits have certainly changed. Uh, I've went from a hardcore PC gamer to an avid mobile gamer. So I play probably one to two hours of mobile games a day on my phone. And the fortunate part about the phone is it's often on the go, right? So you're multitasking, filling time a little bit. But I think also it's transitioned from being a player to being that more passive community member, that spectator, right? I've sort of a little bit aged out from competing competitively, but I still love Counter-Strike. It's still one of the biggest games on the planet. And I've shifted now from a player to a viewer for it. Again, much like traditional sports. At some point, people tend to age out as players and become fans of it in different ways. So still love the community, still love the industry, but not playing hardcore games in the same way that I used to. Yeah, I guess time is also an issue when you're running a, a major business. And, and lastly, if you look at from where you came back in the early 2000s, let's say, and I mean, it's 2023 now. When you look at the future over over the next, even going far out, 10 years, 20 years, can you envision where gaming is going, what you what will eventually see, what it will eventually be like? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's easy, in some ways it's hard. It's easy in the sense of 
you know, how does organized gameplay look like as a business? And you look at the NBA or the NFL and a traditional sports league, and you could see how fandom needs to be cultivated and how competition can create that. And obviously we're not at the level yet of the NFL or the NBA, but the trajectory of where we're going, the underlying participation numbers that you see both in our businesses and their businesses indicate that we will get there. So it's not when, or it's not if, but when. I think the part that becomes harder to crystal ball is how video games and esports being at the center of digital and technology will reshape fandom. And I think that's a challenge that all sports and entertainment are starting to go through and figure out. But what does it mean to be, as a fan, how do I consume this fandom? Even if you look at, again, traditional sports habits from long linear broadcast deals, the shift now with the digital players of Apple and Google and Amazon bidding on sports rights, what does that do to the RSN business? And you extrapolate out now and say people oftentimes don't want to watch a three-hour NFL game. They're consuming it on short form content through TikTok or Instagram. So these very generational shifts of how people consume media and express their fandom, we're at the epicenter and the forefront of it. So the fun part is that we're innovating. Bad part is that we've got to innovate it, uh, (laughs) right? That it's not just plugging into the playbook and turning on the cash machine. But that's the fun of it is really being able to see that create something new. And I believe in many ways, the path of fandom that we build as esports is going to be a model that other sports leagues are are going to look to as well because it's how a generation consumes. Yeah, it's incredible to think of where you've come from, where where gaming has come from, what it is today. When you do look at those numbers and you see how many kids are gaming as compared to playing baseball, or it's it's mind blowing. But I have no doubt that you and your team are are going to implement some things and figure out just the best path forward. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking to us about about this world because it's just it's just fascinating to me as as a especially as a sports person and sports fan to just see what's happened. And you knew it or you were in it back, you know, at, at the beginning, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, been quite a journey. And again, it's um, 20 plus years that we've sort of been at. A lot of people see this as an overnight success, but it really it really took that grind over that time, right? All those war stories that don't get told put us in a position that when the industry around us aligned and the market conditions were right, and that we were able to step through. So it's been a lot of fun, but I think uh, hopefully the future is going to hold even more. Yeah, it's just amazing to think back at the story you tell where people are hopping on planes, bringing their computers, plugging in and where you are today. It's it's really and we look at it and you're young, you can think, okay, 15 years is like a life, but it's really not that long, you know, (laughs) so it's pretty amazing what you've accomplished and really appreciate you joining us on this show and always great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me and letting me share my story and uh, all the work of the incredible people that I get to work with every day. So uh, like anything, it's a team. You got it. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? 
I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T. T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.